This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Well, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 49, our first episode of the new year. Um, Happy New Year to everyone. And Kyler Cheatham is with me as always. Kyler, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Great to have our, our first episode underway here. And uh, we've got an exciting show. And, and by the way, if you're new to this podcast, this is the podcast about digital transformation. Everything related to digital transformation and business transformation is, is what we cover here. Uh, people, process, technology, strategy, all that stuff, plus, plus more. Um, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms, uh, Google, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. So uh, it's a new year, new new trends in the market, new things to think about as we look to the, the future of 2022 and start to execute or, or plan for the years, I should say. And you have a number of hot topics uh, that you've uncovered here over the last couple of weeks over the holidays leading into the new year, Kyler. So what, what, uh, what do you have for us today? Yeah, yeah. Something that I've noticed with a lot of the technology-based content, obviously with the start of the new year, we're talking about a lot of trend-specific content, but there's been some new terms that I kind of wanted to unpack with you today that at least I have never really um, heard of or heard of and referred to in um, such such context. So the first one I want to start with is technical debt. Um, A lot of that we talk about when we when we integrate a Band-Aid or a short-term solution, as opposed to a long-term or a larger digital transformation or enterprise resource planning software option, we build up what's called technical debt. And it's an, you know kind of imperfect short-term solution that needs to be solved in um, the interim. So thus collecting quote unquote debt. So I wanted to kind of just pick your brain about kind of that technical debt because I assume I assume that's something that you work with um, at our client community a lot at Third Stage here. Yeah, yeah, we hear it a lot from certainly uh, industry analysts use that term a lot, and even mm-hmm. clients. We hear a lot of clients that refer to their own technical debt that they're trying to to solve, and typically they're referring to just basically, for lack of a better term, or just to simplify it a bit, it's it's really just. Uh, getting behind in technology. So you, you fall in behind, you haven't done upgrades, you're using outdated technologies. And meanwhile, technology is changing and evolving and getting better and improving and providing more opportunity, but you as an organization have not kept up. And so that's typically what people are referring to when they when they talk about technical debt. Definitely. And is, is that something that, because usually debt correlates to a, more of a financial term, but what I learned from a lot of this research is it, it actually isn't always financial, although you you may invest in a larger IT team to handle that or different integrations to make sure that all of these different systems are able to do things like data management or data sharing, um, that type of thing. But it's actually about having this kind of surplus of about 
uh, a bunch of random systems. Is that right? Yeah, it's a it's surplus of random systems that oftentimes aren't tied together or they, they create uh, data silos, which uh, I remember from a couple of yeah. episodes ago, you yeah. were accusing me of being a data siloer, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's data silos, process silos that are created and certainly, um, you know, just technological advancements that you're missing out on by having the, these disparate outdated systems. I, I do think though, it's, uh, you know, I was, uh, as you know, and as we've talked about many times on the show, I'm a, I'm a skeptic when it comes to buzzwords and that term technical debt, I have to think comes from the vendor and industry analyst community because it almost makes it sound as though it's something you have to do or you have right. to pay back. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's to your point about it usually being a financial related thing. I, I think that's a vendor way of saying, if you're not investing in technology, you're falling behind and you're going to owe it back someday anyway. So you might as well just buy the technology now. I mean, that's kind of what I hear if I unpack it or start trying to interpret what, what the meaning is. Yeah. Um, but not every company, you know, has that. I think it's a, it's sort of a, I don't want to say fear mongering, but it's kind of a fear mongering term that would suggest that any organization that isn't on the current system of the latest and greatest is falling behind and they owe it. You know, they're, they're gonna have to pay it back that debt somehow. And that's not necessarily true. So that that's my uh, Debbie Downer moment for the for the time being on, on that term. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good insight, though, because it is something it does kind of sound a little daunting or negative when you kind of read about it as an organization. You're like, oh, I have, you know, technical debt. And sometimes that isn't always meaning that you need to buy a new software system. As we've talked about uh, a few weeks ago, really integrations are becoming a, a future trend when it comes to utilizing different specialty systems. And that brings me to my, my next key trend that I saw was just a common language when it comes to integrating these best of breed systems or specialized systems. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your reaction to that because I know you help a lot of our clients integrate best of breed systems or like a CRM system versus, you know, an, an HCM system, those types of things, spe specifically specialty supply chain or manufacturing, those types of things. Um, and just knowing that they will need a quote unquote common language to integrate with other areas or to be able to share other areas, even when we're like categorizing, categorizing a customer or a user, those labels have to be essentially the same in order to do things like automate. Um, so I wondered if if you could kind of give us your, your reaction to, do you think that's kind of where we're going to more of creating a common language versus a whole ERP system um, and utilizing that more best of breed approach for each kind of leg or department of an organization? I think so. Um... You know, I think it's, I don't know that just like every topic we discuss on this show, you know, there is no one size fits all answer. And I wouldn't say, you know, broadly or generally that that is a trend that's going to apply to everyone at some point in the future. Um, but I do think there's a lot of merit in the best of breed model. You know, 20 years ago, it was kind of frowned upon, I feel like, or 10 to 20 yeah. years ago, it seemed sort of frowned upon because it was so difficult to integrate systems and it was creating more problems than it was solving in mm -hmm. many cases. But I think now with the integration tools and this common language that you're talking about and, and just the flexibility of technology now, uh, typically that uh, enables more of a best of breed model. And I think it also points to the fact that, you know, there's always going to be, in my opinion, a um, push and pull or a tension between the benefits of a single ERP system, which are that it's one single unified system mm -hmm. for the most part um, that can integrate uh, all the modules together, all the data is in one place. Um, but it can't be everything to everyone within any given organization. And 
the benefit of best of breed is that with best of breed, you can go out and find the best technologies for any given function or business process. And then, you know, not have to settle for any deficiencies that a, a general, a more general, broader ERP system might have. But now you've created more pressure. There's more uh, need to create the integration and make sure you have data management well-defined and, and all, all that stuff. So it's, there's pros and cons to either side, but I think it's, it's sort of like a, a pendulum swing. You know, there's always going to be uh, pushing and pulling to either side. There's pros and cons to either side. And a lot of it just comes down to where you are as an organization, what your priorities are and figuring out, you know, if best of breed is a, is a good model. But I would say though, in general, we see a lot more viable best of breed transformations now than we did five, 10, 20 years ago, for sure. So it, it does seem to be in a trend that's, it does seem to be a trend that's evolving, but I'm always skeptical of any sort of trend that is going to overtake the, the world and become the, the one answer for organizations. I, I think there's just too many options out there to over oversimplify that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the business technologist in me thinks, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you want to have a system that does everything so specialized for each area of the organization, that seems like a value. But yeah. then when you think about actually what it takes to create this common language and the strategic alignment you need behind it, really the organizational change you need behind it. So each department isn't that siloed type of structure and you, you change this behavior. So it seems like that's a lot more of a significant undertaking than just, you know, plugging something in and, and the data will just, you know, magically flow through. Yeah, it's, it's very true. And that, that's why the, the whole discipline of uh, system architecture, integration, data management, that whole bucket of technical stuff is becoming more and more important and in higher demand because you have more systems that are proliferating throughout, you know, the technical landscape and more organizations are relying on multiple systems mm -hmm. and it can work very nicely as long as you have a, a clear integration plan, a clear architecture strategy and, and data management uh, plan. But a lot of companies sort of over look that piece of it, or they oversimplify what it's going to take to address those areas. And that should be something you bake into your transformation plan, because that's mm -hmm. going to take a lot of time and, and effort. And that quite frankly, it's probably going to be on the critical path, that whole integration and architecture piece of it. Yeah, I actually saw um, an article that talked about that that system architecture role will be one of the, the top most coveted roles in the technology sector for 2022, just being able mm. to, to do that. But the, the piece that actually surprised me about that was um, obviously you need some some technical skills and, and just knowing about uh, that overall, like whether it's like Java based or anything like that um, when it comes to coding. So you need that technical skill set. But the article I saw at least talked about the importance of identifying a person that can work across the organization that has high emotional intelligence that really you wouldn't always stereotypically put those in kind of a technology-based role. So these types of people need to be able to understand um, and collaborate with people across the entire organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it is a good point. You bring up a really good point in that it's not just a technology discussion or a technology issue. It's also, uh, you, you certainly are looking at APIs and integration between systems. You're looking at data management. You're looking at the general architecture and how it all ties together from a technology perspective, but you also should be looking at the business integration too. And I think that's what you're alluding to is sort of that functional architecture, that functional integration of, you know, how are you going to architect your business? You know, how are your end-to-end -end business processes going to come together 
and ultimately how can the technology support that? Yeah, and making sure that your overall business community or your internal teams are aware of how critical it is to make sure that you're at, from our, back to our category type of example, to make sure that you are implementing data correctly or there's it becomes completely irrelevant and unvaluable because it can't be consumed by any other systems within the organization. I don't think a lot of, a lot of people that aren't maybe in a technical position really realize the importance of that or making that behavior shift, how significant that can be um, on these, these types of roles. Yeah, I, I agree for sure. There's, there's a lot of layers to unpack within everything you're talking about there. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of layers, um, the, the next thing I wanna talk about is the, the metaverse. Um, so for those of, of, of our audience like me that has no idea what this is, can you explain the metaverse to us before I kind of go over it? Uh, actually, I can't. I, I don't know a lot about what exactly the metaverse means. Um, does this have anything to do with Facebook meta or is this totally different? Um, well, Facebook has invested in the metaverse. Um, they're one of the, the few companies that have kind of taken stake with it. So this this article talked about how um, the metaverse is really kind of a, a digital reality, talking about social media, online gaming, augmented reality, virtual reality, um, and cryptocurrencies. And that kind of allows the user to find all of this in, in one location or one interaction. Um, so it, it talks about you know, how only a few companies have really taken stake in it. And that's Facebook's on that list, Spotify's on that list, Zoom is actually on that list. Um, and then how it will kind of change the overall consumption of technology through like AR glasses and wearables would be an example of, of, of that too. So it, it affects a lot of technology sectors, especially kind of the newer pieces like the collaborative productivity, like Canva. We use Canva here at third stage, Slack, those types of things that are about collaborating across a digital ecosystem. Um, so that's kind of what that meant. Um, the other one that was the, was interesting was the NTF platforms. So um, what that will look like as far as growth and that can be kind of a, a hybrid example of both kind of in-person and digital options. Like for example, they gave a, a, a property may come online and a virtual real estate agent would be able to, or even a bot would be able to chat with the customer, um, or it could pre-qualify them in a, a different way without taking any sort of face-to-face -face interaction. And that could all be automated. So kind of a, an interesting um, trend we're kind of talking about, you know, outside of, of normal core digital transformation, just technology yeah. evolution. More emerging yeah. technology type stuff. Mm -hmm. What what does NTF stand for? Just for those that aren't familiar with that acronym, um, it stands for non fungible token, which is the underlying technology of, of cryptocurrency. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, so in, it's, in, like, it's like a uh, computer code and data that conveys ownership or something. You know, you you talked about. Have you ever heard of like people buying um, a virtual art? Yeah. for like millions of dollars, which to me, that doesn't make a ton of sense. But obviously, there is a market out there for being able to um, take cryptocurrencies or actually own something via a digital environment. So, yeah, 
yeah, that's uh, and that also ties back to to blockchain as well. I think that's all sort of uh, tied together. The the, N- the NFT, I think I said NTF. I meant NFT. NFT and blockchain, I think, are very uh, interrelated. Um, back to this metaverse thing, though. Um, so, what when you look at that metaverse, are there any use cases of how you you talked about um, Zoom and uh, Facebook and some of these other companies that are on the leading edge of um, of metaverse type stuff? But what are there use cases of how it's being used or how they envision it being used in the future? Just to like, because to, to me, it seems super high level conceptual, yeah. and I'm not seeing how like blockchain and NFT. That's more, you know, you've got more tangible use cases. And by the way, we're going to have a, a guest on next week that's going to talk about uh, fintech and financial technologies, um, such as cryptocurrency and blockchain and whatnot. Um, so if you're interested in that topic, we'll unpack that more with our guest next week. But um, are there specific examples within the world of metaverse of, of how that's being used or how you know, could be used in the future? I know you, I know I like to put you on the spot, but when you do that to me, it's not, I'm just- <laughs> How the, how the so, tables have turned. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. So what I can describe, and we'd love to hear from our audience if we do have any experts out there, because obviously we're still learning about this as we kind of unpack the, the future trends, um, but it seems like it provides access um, so it's like a virtual space that provides access to entertainment, to projects, opportunity to work, those types of things. Um, it's like a convenience of consumption and a, a frictionless access to service. So that's kind of from a top level, it still signs kind of high level. I can't find, you know, exactly of a, a specific example, but it seems like a lot of, you know, the tech giant, um, especially in the gaming area will continue to kind of build this out. So if our audience has any more information about it, um, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, oh, that's good stuff. Really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and the other kind of cool thing that I, I looked at um, was talking about the food and beverage industry specifically and what their kind of customer integration technology looks like. Because obviously we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had to go to contactless and and food and beverage, as you talk about in a lot of your content, has really been one of the industries that has had to go through a transformation in order to survive because their face-to-face business model was literally not available to them for a long time. So that kind of sparked this new innovation, specifically Taco Bell has a new Defy store design. And if, if you have a second to Google that, anyone listening, it's super cool. It has um, four drive-through lanes um, that are dedicated to um, delivery pickups or mobile orders. And basically you scan a QR code and your food will be delivered via via contactless priority lift system. So think about like when you go to the bank and kind of you have that transport system between you and the teller. Um, that's kind of what that looks like is you, you don't have any contact with an order taker or anything like that. Um, and that's kind of been a trend specifically in technology, technology like Byte Ninja also launched this in 2021. And it actually outsources drive through operations through like gig workers from home. So hmm. basically you're, you're actually ordering from someone that's not in the restaurant, but they're passing that order to whomever's preparing the food and you pick it up. So very interesting kind of how that's evolved in just the overall food and beverage technology specifically, because we hadn't seen a whole lot of movement in that industry. You know, you do have 
kind of the POS systems that are more mobile, you can pay at the table, those types of things, kiosks, but now really kiosks have evolved to, you know, your iPhone is actually, or whatever smart device you're utilizing is how you order. And then you really don't interact with much employees. So definitely a, a shift in, in um, automation, AI, machine learning, those types of things um, as well for food and beverage. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, it's a good reminder of how the pandemic has really uh, forced organizations mm-hmm. into these sorts of digital transformations, or, or at least the smart ones have figured out how to <laughs> use technology to navigate this environment. But, it, but also, you know, even once the pandemic's over and we're not so concerned about uh, human contact and, and health and safety and whatnot, um, not that we'll ever stop being concerned, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It won't, won't be as yeah. concerning. It, these technologies will help even in that environment too. So it's really interesting um, to see that. And, and the other thing you mentioned, one little thing that, that triggered a, a sort of a memory or thought, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, those mobile payments uh, in the United States, which, as far as having the servers that'll just come over and, and take your credit card right at the table, print out a receipt, you sign it or whatever, right there on the spot. Um, that's been around in Europe forever. Like I remember yeah. traveling to Europe and like 10 years ago and seeing that technology there, but then you come to the United States and you, they were still doing it the old school way of taking their credit card to the back to one central credit card processing machine and, you know, kind of scanning it and everything. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of a reminder that like there, there, that technology has been around forever, but right. the pandemic has sort of forced the U S companies, the U S food and uh, restaurant companies to catch up uh, in that regard. And I'm sure there's many other examples of that throughout the world. Um, oh yeah, definitely. And, and kind of transforming um, food and beverage industries or businesses to really look at things that they wouldn't typically look at like big data. For example, when you utilize Grubhub or DoorDash, those third-party delivery services, the business that actually gives that, you know, gives that a piece of that commission to that third party, they have no access to that customer data. So they have no idea how to you know, use that for business intelligence. So there's been a lot of other platforms that have kind of launched it as more of a hub. So you can pay a subscription fee as opposed to a commission and utilize the customer data, but the platform still kind of showcases how you can deliver an order through that. So lots right. of you know, really interesting things there, but you wouldn't really see that as a main priority before pre-COVID-19. Um, Because, you know, people walk into the restaurants and and it was pretty traditional business model. And now it's kind of really taken a a digital um, strategy to be successful within the restaurant industry. Yeah, it it also reminds me of that whole omni-channel movement that had been happening already in the retail space where you could, Mm -hmm. you know, they could track what you're buying in store versus what you're buying online. And they made it semi-seamless to sort of return stuff. Uh, in a store if you bought it online or vice versa. Um, so it's it, it's things like that where I think it's it's sort of, uh, again, the, the pandemic and just this disruption we're seeing in the world is sort of forcing or accelerating those those sorts of trends like that. Absolutely. And, and you know, something else we've kind of seen is bigger companies, big tech giants, specifically in the software space, trying to acquire different sort of industry niche businesses or di- platforms, I should say, Um, Like Oracle right now um, is looking to buy, as everyone knows, kind of in the industry for 30 billion, um, an electronic medical records company, which would be, you know, a really big kind of merger into the healthcare sphere. Um, And I know, you know, Eric, you, you know, a lot kind of 
more about that than I do, but do you think that's kind of along the same lines of trying to kind of acquire those niche pieces of solution like we were talking about um, earlier, specifically in an emerging market like healthcare? Yeah, I mean, it's you look at, again, what, what industries have been most impacted by the pandemic and what industries are most likely to, to have uh, sort of forced acceleration of technology adoption uh, on them, and, and healthcare is certainly one of them. We talked about food and bev, we talked about um, retail, uh, but healthcare is certainly is another one. I think it's a smart move to for Oracle to buy um, to buy Cerner, and I think that's uh, uh, you know that's sort of Oracle's model is they go out and buy these really successful companies. They did it with Siebel and PeopleSoft and um, JD Edwards. NetSuite was was probably the I think the most the more recent big one that they had, and so I think I read that Cerner is the that's the biggest acquisition that Oracle's ever made. I think mm-hmm. I, I saw that correctly, even bigger than the NetSuite acquisition. Um, so it's a pretty big deal. And clearly they're, they're doubling down on the whole healthcare industry and that whole movement and need to digitize, what digitize, how do you say that? Digitize. Digitize. I don't know why I have trouble with that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. So healthcare is trying to digitize uh, just like a lot of other industries are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking of digitized, right, or, um, you know, new markets today, we kind of talked about it at the beginning, but third stage is moving into more of uh, the African market. So in Africa, um, I know we're planning on opening an office there and or we already have and um, it's a newer office. And uh, we kind of talked about what that means in our upcoming interview with you and Adam, as Adam manages a lot of that business and we work together, kind of create those partnerships. But I wanted to talk about Africa specifically because it's really been on the news headlines about how businesses there are utilizing technology um, and the, the really homegrown type of systems or solutions that are needed to support that area. When we talk about things like connectivity, for example, in Africa, as you guys know, um, mobile numbers are really people's identifying um, data, really. Um, so when we talk about, do they have an email address? Not everyone does, but they all have some sort of SMS. And it's really critical to reaching the majority of African consumers who own a ba- basic phone rather than a smartphone. Um, and then what that that looks like, and I didn't know this, but maybe you did, and about 98% of subscribers in Africa use prepaid mobile phone plans, um, which a lot of our uh, softwares here in the US or, or a lot of our, our global enterprise software doesn't have those features anymore um, because it's not what most of our, our global clients utilize. So I wondered if you could kind of react to that or, or, or give us some insight on kind of solidifying a digital transformation within the African market. Yeah, it's, it's similar to uh, what I was saying earlier about uh, how Europe was so far ahead of the U.S. and some of their adoption of technology in the, in the restaurant industry, um, or as far as credit card payment processing. Um, and I think that this is another good example that it's just a, I don't know if it's a cultural or economic thing, or maybe it's a combination of both. Uh, but in Africa, it is a lot more common to do uh, mobile payments versus cash or credit card. Credit cards aren't nearly as common there as they are mm-hmm. in the U.S., Europe, and some other parts of the world. Um, but I think that it's a, you know, I think that's a, a reminder, especially for the multinationals listening. Um, certainly, if you're based in Africa, if you're an organization based in Africa, it's something you already know. 
But if you're a multinational that's doing business in Africa or even any other part of the world, it's, it's really important to recognize and understand some of those cultural and economic nuances um, that are going to be different. And, and it, it gets back to this whole concept that, you know, multinationals oftentimes are, are trying to create a common operating model, a common set of business processes. They're trying to do things one way if they can. Um, but this is a good reminder that sometimes there's limitations on that or that you, you need to sort of adjust for lo local um, cultures and processes and preferences and things of that nature. And it's always a slippery slope because a lot of organizations struggle with that. They think that it's all or nothing. Either we're going to be standardized and do everything one way or we're not. And the reality is you typically end up uh, with, a, with a mix of both. It's just a matter of being strategic and selective and deliberate about how you, how you address some of those differences. Absolutely. And, and what, what would you say to businesses or have you experienced businesses specifically within the African market that are, are working on a global strategy or even a domestic strategy um, that feature or face, I guess, that challenge of, of not having a lot of resources in the area? For example, I came across a statistic that said Africa, the talent is at an all-time high, um, nearly 700,000 professional developers but compare that to somewhere like India that has 2.75 million um, professional developers. So it seems like a lot of that, that resourcing is a challenge as well. Is that something that you've experienced? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, it's resourcing. Um, mm -hmm. I think the numbers can be a little bit misleading just because India, you know, for example, India has so many people compared yeah. to Africa. Yeah. I think you know, there's over a billion people in India alone in Africa. I don't think the entire continent even has a billion. Or I could be wrong on that. Don't do not quote me on that. I'm not an expert in geopolitical uh, uh, metrics and things of that nature. But I think the point is that India is a bigger country. But I think the bigger issue, aside from the raw numbers, is just the level of education in whatever region you're dealing with. India, I, I think, and from what I understand, has a you know an evolving and a maturing education and skill level than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, as a country. And Africa, I think, is, is sort of coming up on that same, they're maturing in that same way, but they're earlier in the maturity phase of that uh, sort of uh, increasing education level and skill sets and competencies to support a, a digital transformation or, or just to have the technical competencies required to make, make a project successful. But it's a, you're hitting on another really good point in that, you know, let's just say you're, you have two uh, offices you're rolling out to, you're going to roll out to India and you're going to roll out to a, a country within Africa, you're probably going to have to have two different sort of change management strategies and training programs. It's probably going to look a bit different, partly because you need to localize for culture and language, but also because you have to localize for their where they are today in terms of their competency level uh, and whatnot. Um, you know, we still have clients today where you're not just training people on how to use a new ERP or enterprise technology, you're training them how to use a computer, or in some cases, you're training mm -hmm. them on how to use a tablet or a device, mm -hmm. um, just because they, you know, not everyone, I think we take it for granted sometimes, those of us that are, are comfortable with certain technologies, we take for granted that others aren't always as comfortable, and they don't have the skill set, and they're coming from a different place, so you, mm -hmm. you really have to recognize where they are today to help them get where you're trying to get in the future, and that's just one example uh, that you bring up there. Yeah, absolutely, and so, um, can we talk about the Afri Africa office for a little bit? I just wanted sure. to um, to kind of ask you about one of the, the trends I found. So um, Harvard Business Review covered the emerging markets in Africa and kind of the technology pieces. And it sounds like um, 
one of their biggest tactics was to deepen their knowledge with the local terrain or partner with local companies. Because it sounds like based on what they said is Africa has an extreme kind of polarization of technology usage. So for example, you have South Africa that's very technically savvy and then they utilize things like, you know, um, um, the internet and the and that type of thing. But then you have a, a country like Kenya, for example, in, in this um, case study that utilizes things like WhatsApp to be able to um, talk with each other. So was that kind of one of the reasons that you felt you kind of needed that boots on the ground approach and having a presence in Africa? Yeah, that's part of it, certainly. And, and the other part of it is just you know, we're all human and I think we're comfortable with people, even in a pandemic where a lot of people are still working in a hybrid work environment where a lot of work is being conducted uh, digital, digitally. I seem to be having trouble with the word digital, digital today, which is ironic given the uh, topic <laughs> at hand that we cover in this podcast. But I think the, the bigger thing is just having a, a local presence and, and people that understand the culture and are, are more familiar with those local markets. Um, we just found that you know, we, we have clients in, in Africa that we've serviced and supported from the United States or one of our other offices, but it's just not the same and it's not as effective as having a team there locally. So it's more of a, honestly, it's more of a cultural uh, and physical presence sort of thing. And, and we're also investing in the future because at some point pandemic ends and we're going to be back to, um, we'll get back to fully, you know, doing in-person work or business as, as needed. Um, so we want to be you know, we want to be have a head head start on that when that when that time comes. And we're already moving that direction in, in a lot of the world. We're already starting to do more travel and in person meetings and workshops and whatnot. Well, good. Well, I um, I think that's a great segue to your conversation with Adam, who has helped kind of um, innovate the Africa business over there. You know, um, and has a, a deep passion for that kind of emerging market. Um, so, uh, with that, it probably is a good time to to shift to that that yeah. conversation. Yeah. And in fact, um, we're, we're not even through the first episode of the year. And I already had my first major screw up on this podcast in that I forgot to uh, open up the segment talking about who's going to be on the show. What are we <laughs> going to talk about today? So uh, we already talked about hot topics. That was obviously the first segment you just heard. Uh, but we're also going to have two guests on the show and play you two clips uh, from previous interviews um, that uh, we conducted. One is talking with Adam Cheatham, who's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage. He's going to be on talking about digital transformation in Africa, and actually it's a conversation that he and I have about digital transformation in Africa. And that, that topic is going to be really important for you, even if you're not operating in Africa, it's we unpack and get into a lot of the, the cultural and operational differences of doing business in different countries. So if you're a multinational organization or if you're on a project team that's dealing in different countries, uh, that, that topic will be relevant, even if it's not Africa in particular. So Adam and I will, will discuss that. And then later in the show, we'll have Dave Beldick from Third Stage. He's been on this uh, podcast now a few times, and he always has excellent uh, thoughts and advice. He's going to be on talking about operational excellence and business intelligence. Um, and that's an interview that Kyler conducted uh, for our sister podcast called Digital Stratosphere, which I encourage you to subscribe to that one as well if you haven't already. Um, those are usually shorter uh, segments, sort of 15 to 30 minute type segments versus the longer form uh, format of this show. Um, so we'll have those two guests uh, on later today, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Adam and myself on talking about digital transformation in Africa. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 49. Happy New Year, first episode of 2022. Uh, we're excited for our guests on today's show. And our next guest is going to be uh, Adam and myself. Actually, this is a video uh, segment that we recorded uh, offline from this podcast. It's a discussion that he and I had recently about our office in Africa and just some of the nuances of addressing digital transformation and projects like that in Africa and other parts of the world. So. We're going to play you a clip uh, from that discussion. Uh, so let's turn it over to Adam to talk about digital transformation in Africa. My name is Adam Cheatham. I'm Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. I'm here with Eric Kimberling, our, our CEO and, and founder. Um, and we're here to talk today about uh, digital transformations in Africa. You know, Eric, we've been uh, seeing a, a bit of a spike in, in, in interest in, in, in clients in, in Africa and the digital transformation space. <clears throat> uh, what do you think is leading to that? Well, I think there's a broad global trend that is partially to point to, which is the the broad trend toward digital transformation, particularly in light of COVID and some of the exposure that or things that were exposed weaknesses and in, in digital strategies for a lot of organizations. So I think it's a it's a big macro global trend to begin with. But I think within Africa in particular, you're having you're seeing a lot of emerging markets, a lot of emerging companies that are going through pretty aggressive growth cycles that are leading them to conclude that their legacy systems or spreadsheets in some cases aren't going to help them scale to get to the level they need to get to. So I think it's probably a combination of those two things, plus maybe a third element would be just the further globalization of some of these African companies that are trying to sell mm -hmm. to foreign markets outside of Africa or even within Africa. So I think that all those things combined lead to growth and strains on the existing uh, infrastructure that a lot of these companies have. Yeah, that's that's actually a real great <clears throat> a real great comment on the you know that they want to kind of grow outside of their current sphere of influence. And one of our recent clients that we've uh, that you and I were speaking with um, recently had mentioned that you know we want to use the CRP as an opportunity to become world class and 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 to leave our imprint on on a more globalized economy. So I like that that line of thinking and being able to say that growing your footprint from Africa and into uh, the rest of the world. Uh, <clears throat> from a from a software perspective, do you see that as um, being a, leading to different types of software or ERP or digital transformation decisions in Africa, or do you uh, what what types of changes do you see there as far as that uh, that region of the world in general? Yeah, so I'd say the two big things or the two big considerations that are somewhat unique to Africa that would lead organizations oftentimes down a different path than if they were in Europe or the Americas or Asia would be that because it's more of a developing market, um, you're going to have less skill sets and less uh, competencies in mm -hmm. large-scale ERP systems. 
So for a lot of organizations that are just now starting to enter the global arena, or they're just now going through large growth spurts, and they're not very sophisticated from a technology perspective, it's going to be a bigger jump for them either way. Whatever technology they deploy, it's probably going to be a bigger jump than maybe a more mature company in the Americas or Asia or wherever it may be. Um, so that's part of the consideration. So it, it's harder to justify a big, massive uh, ERP system like an SAP or an Oracle for an organization that has never been through an ERP implementation or maybe they just aren't quite ready for something that big and robust. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing to think about is just as the market develops in Africa, it's there's a lot of pockets of variability in terms of the types of technical consulting skills available mm -hmm. in the market. So what we're finding with our clients there now is that certain uh, markets that we work in, for example, we have, we have offices not only in Africa, but also Europe, Asia, and the Americas. And when you look at any of those other three regions we operate in, oftentimes we find that there's a more established ecosystem to support each of the different technologies there. Whereas in Africa, that's not the case. There's certain systems that we sort of take for granted here in the Americas or in Europe, for example, because there's so many consultants and so many different resellers and implementation partners that specialize in that software. But in Africa, they're not as developed in some of those some of those ecosystems. So that's another big consideration is the software, even if it is a good fit for you, do you have the support there locally within Africa to, to help you? Yeah, and is, is uh, what type of consequences do you see our clients and, and other uh, uh, companies that are seeking to undergo a digital transformation in that that um, space where you know the the, the number of resources that are involved in digital transformation and can help with that are, are fewer and farther between. What types of options do, do uh, companies have for managing their digital transformation given that gap? Well, what we're seeing with our African office that we're opening there now and with our current clients in Africa is that they're hiring us for that reason, to fill that void, to be that independent partner, to either help them select and figure out what the right technology or technologies are for their organization and or to help them implement whatever the solutions are. So having the independent technology agnostic provider that has global experience with all these different systems mm -hmm. that can perhaps connect the dots between what the local limitations might be in terms of ecosystem and skill sets and whatnot and connecting with a global uh, skill set and a global consulting base in our case, um, that that's a big reason why clients in Africa hire us. Gotcha. Fantastic. Um, you know, it's because uh, it's you, you kind of have this balance and the, the rationale that a company thinks through when they're starting to think about digital transformation, right? There's uh, um, the, uh, the options that include I could hire a system integrator, I could hire an independent third party like third stage, or I could do this myself. Um, you know, the, can you share a little bit on the, the risks of doing this yourself as, a, as an individual company? Say, I'm just going to buy the software and I'm going to implement it um, internally. Yeah, so the big, the big thing that I'd say uh, is a consideration there is that if, if you try to do it yourself, and this is true actually even outside of Africa, no matter where in the world you might be, mm. this is a true statement where if you don't have the experience and you don't do this for a living, you don't do ARP implementations or digital transformations for a living, it's going to be very difficult to know what you're doing and to know what the risks are and, to, and you just have more blind spots that are more prone to risk. So that's probably the, the biggest thing. And then you know you add in the some of the local considerations that we talked about as far as you know lack of ecosystem or lack of internal uh, competencies around uh, big transformation projects like this. And in some cases too, by the way, a lot of, a lot of organizations that are, are developing in Africa are working with, with uh, lower skilled uh, employees. 
so that's more difficult for them to change. And so that's another consideration in, in a blind spot that can create challenges, if, especially if you're trying to do it yourself. So let me turn the table a little bit and ask you a question, Adam. Uh, you're working closely with our team that's actually based in Africa, mm -hmm. working with those clients based in Africa. You're doing a lot of that remotely here from the United States, especially in light of the, the pandemic and travel limitations and whatnot. How is it that we're, you know, how are we delivering that work and what does that, what does that look like for a lot of our clients? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the way that um, we're approaching some of it is to say that um, as travel restrictions allow, right? You know, being in person is an important uh, an important option for our clients. Some want it, some don't. Some travel sometimes travel restrictions prohibit it um, or make it more difficult. So we have a, a blended approach to that, where um, we can work on site as long as as we, as we can do that safe and safely and um, in a healthy manner. But there are all we use a number of different types of tools from a perspective of interacting with our clients. Um, you know. I, even from the U.S., I'm, I'm, I've been able to develop strong relationships with our clients as, as, as we're building those out in Africa. Um, and we do have uh, a presence there as well that helps us be a little bit more localized, um, whether it's a time zone perspective or, um, or just a regional perspective, right? Being close enough to, to understand the idiosyncrasies in the economies there, um, what it means to be undergoing a digital transformation in Africa in general, what some of the things that are um, aren't as available in the area uh, from an infrastructure perspective. Um, so we, we have a presence there as well as support uh, from, frankly, all of our offices. We've got, um, had a really good success rate in people that are um, passionate about wanting to help and uh, um, not just the digital transformation, but you know when we have clients that uh, are part of the, the growth of infrastructure in Africa, we have folks that want to help with that from a um, whether it be a humanitarian perspective or just a, a curiosity in the continent perspective, we've got a lot of ways of being able to approach that. So we've been we've been pretty successful so far, and our clients have been appreciative of it. Yeah, yeah, and I know you and I both have past experience working in the region, even before mm -hmm. third stage, and we both yep. have an affinity for the the region and the continent and doing the work there. So that's something I think we can both both relate to for sure. Yeah, for sure, and it's, especially as you start talking about, um, you know what that looks like from a growth perspective right how um, how is it different you know the the ways that um africa has come into its its mo um, more modern self these days has has a history and i think that um it's important to, to recognize that um and recognize where that history comes from um you know it's it, what's interesting to me uh recently is that i've talked to a couple of different folks about it and <clears throat> They like our presence in the space because we are their trusted advisor and we act as an extension of their team, as opposed to some of the larger uh, consulting firms that seem a bit more, um, I have one guy explicitly explain it as um, imperial in nature, where if you kind of go back to the days of colonialism, where you had the Western world that comes in and pulls out all of the money and resources and leaves with it, um, there's a significant contingency in Africa that sees the big four, the big six, whatever you want to call them, um, as having that same type of habit where they bring in these massive consulting firms and these gigantic, very expensive transformations, and they cost a lot of money, and then they leave. Um, and they don't, uh, they don't uh, this particular client was not, didn't feel like that company, those companies had their best interests at heart, and they were really glad to hear that we do. Yeah, and you bring up a great point too about the half the value or a big part of the value that we bring is as being an extension of our clients program management is also helping them become self-sufficient. Yeah. 
you know, when we leave, you should, you as an organization should be very self-sufficient and we want to be able to train and educate and help the teams become um, self-sufficient so they don't need to rely on us or any other consulting firm just to continue their operations in the future. Yep. So it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. It's, um, it's not like any other continent. Um, you know, we've got clients all over the world and, and all continents and Africa is particularly different in the way that the, the digital transformation industry is, is uh, evolving. So it's kind of cool to see. Yeah, I agree. Okay, thanks. We've got more we're going to get into in this clip, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we are in the midst of an interview discussion between Adam Cheatham, Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage, and myself, and we're talking about digital transformation in Africa. So let's cut back to the clip. So I wanna ask you a question again, kind of going back to a question you asked me and maybe building on it a little bit. You, you'd asked me the question around the types of software or the types of technologies that companies in Africa are likely to consider and how that might be different than other parts of the world. When you look at the migration to the cloud, which most vendors are pushing their, their products to the, the cloud or they already have, how does that, that cloud offering combined with infrastructural limitations in Africa in some many parts of Africa, how does that how does that all work with our clients? Yeah, it's um, it's a part of the, it's a bigger part of the conversation than it, than it is in um, some of the more uh, developed countries or, or Western world, if you will. Um, in that, you had to ask the question: Do we have strong enough connectivity, um, and is it reliable enough? You know, so um, when when you have internet that comes in and out. Um, you want to start thinking more deliberately about is a cloud system right for us? You know, it's, um, if your internet goes out and you can't run your manufacturing shop floor uh, because the internet's not on, you're you're dead in the water. So we, uh, what we've done with uh, with a number of our clients is kind of understand where, where what areas can you, uh, what areas, offices, facilities, or whatever you want to call it, can you confidently say you're going to have reliable uh, connectivity? Um, and which ones aren't you, and how do you want to approach that? Um, you know, this, um, as much as these big uh, uh, software companies don't want to admit, most software platforms you can still get uh, a hosted version of, an on-premise version of. You just you have to ask for it, um, and most of the time they won't tell you that it exists. Um, it's got to be compelling enough for them to, to say, yeah, you know, we can do that. And then think about how you connect that, right? Uh, you know, if you have a manufacturing facility, um, like one of our clients had that's out in a very rural area, um, you know, maybe the answer is is less we we get a, an MES tie-in on the shop floor that ties into our system and and have uh, you know as as much as I hate to say it, a more manual touch point for 
passing on the information from uh, on work in progress and those types of things in the area. It each scenario is going to be different though, because each the the variability and in, 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 uh, connectivity and in the infrastructure there um, is is going to have an impact on how it is you run your business, especially if it's dependent on cloud software. So. Um, as you start to get more dependent on cloud software or more um, keen to tie your each each office and location and manufacturing facility together on one system over the cloud, you have to you have to consider it because um, it's uh, particularly in Africa, but as well as in a number of the areas of the, in the developing world, you can't count on connectivity like we do. Um, here in Denver, Colorado, in the in the tech center, right? right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we just want to be aware of that and, and understanding of it and approach it head on, you know, and understand that it's going to be a challenge. It may take a little bit more creativity than normal to figure out how to solve for it, um, but it is something that needs to be solved for. Otherwise, you know, clients may end up buying software systems that um, they don't use because they can't get them connected to the internet. Yeah, and it's a good reminder too that you know your business needs and in some cases infrastructure limitations should drive the types of technology that you deploy. It's I think software vendors, to your point, are going to push you even if it's not realistic for you to use that technology. They're going to push you toward a cloud solution because they make more money off of it. So I think at the end of the day, that's maybe a good way to vet out some of the vendors that aren't good fits and maybe migrate more to the vendors that have more of a hybrid model or at least give you the flexibility to have some sort of on-premise. Um, option and or some sort of on-premise backup for, for those cloud solutions. And not all vendors do that. You know, if, yeah. For example, NetSuite, you're probably not going to deploy NetSuite in an on-premise environment because it doesn't exist. You know, whether or not you can create a backup or some sort of fallback solution is a different story, but there's other vendors like SAP, for example, or IFS. Those are two vendors that come to mind. Mm -hmm. I think Infor does too. They are vendors that still have sort of hybrid or uh, hybrid deployment models and or options on either deploying on-prem or uh, in the cloud. Yep. So definitely agree with you on that. It'll be interesting to see how that develops um, uh, it, over over the next couple of years. Because you know, the the more you go cloud, the more you're gonna um, you're gonna struggle in Africa to get on the cloud. But at the same time, you know, connectivity will continue to grow there as well. Right. Um, it's just is gonna take a little time. Yep. If I'm in a, an organization, a company in Africa, and I'm considering going through a digital transformation so that I can become a little bit more um, world-class, if you like, uh, what should I do? Well, I think, you know, one option you have is to, to brainstorm with us. You know, we have got the local team in Africa. We have consultants throughout the world. You and I are in the Americas. We have others in Europe and Asia as well. So just bouncing around ideas can oftentimes be helpful. So people watching this video that are interested can reach out to us. We'll include our contact information below, and we can put you in touch with the, uh, the people from our team that are based in Africa, as well as others that might be able to help. So if you want more information about digital transformation um, in Africa or elsewhere, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or reach out to us more directly, whether it be on LinkedIn or, or elsewhere, we'd love to hear from you. All right, thanks, Adam. Thanks for that discussion. And, and hopefully the audience found that helpful uh, in the context of doing digital transformations, not just in Africa, but both internationally. Um, we're going to unpack some of that discussion and hit on some of the salient points here in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 49. I'm here with uh, Kyler Cheatham. This is our first episode of 2022. Thanks for being here with us today. And uh, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and LinkedIn, as well as on all the audio podcast platforms. So if you look for us on uh, Google, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Apple, wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to subscribe to us and check out the show there. And uh, also check us out on social media. We have uh, stuff that we post every day. We're always putting out new content, new videos, blogs, uh, white papers, other types of content relevant to your digital transformation and making your digital transformation more successful. So Kyler, we just had this discussion uh, with Adam and I uh, talking about digital transformation in Africa. What what were some of your thoughts on that discussion? Yeah, well, fun fact, um, Adam yeah. talked about how he did, uh, he has a, a MBA in international, um, an international MBA, and he did a lot of his uh, graduate work in Africa. Um, and yeah. he once told me that baboons broke into his hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> Find that absolutely hilarious. Not related at all, but just a, you know, a fun little fact for our audience here. And not not many people can say that that has happened to them. I, I know. Do to, I do have to say though, I didn't mention this. Uh, I, maybe I should have mentioned it in the segue into the interview with Adam and I. But I, but I do find that, um, or I found in my personal uh, career. That Africa is my favorite place to, to visit. I love, absolutely love uh, South Africa, I should say. I haven't been all over Africa, only South Africa, uh, but I absolutely love it there. It's my mm-hmm. favorite. It's literally my favorite place to visit uh, in the world. So uh, look forward to seeing other parts of Africa as well. So that, but I do not have any baboon stories. Like oh, Adam. good. Yeah. And I've, I've actually never been to Africa. It's definitely on my bucket list. So I, I was like, you know, were you scared? And he's like, yeah, have you ever seen a baboon? <laughs> Absolutely. I was out of there. So <laughs> yeah, those things are crazy. I, yeah, I would not want to come to my room either. <laughs> I know, but that's, that's, you know, just a, um, something that he, he had shared about his work over there. But I think, um, you know, the main thing that is a consideration, you know, from that topic is just the overall infrastructure that you discussed and, and the difficult um, connectivity between specifically countries or helping clients go through, um, you know, any sort of digital transformation because it might be really successful in South Africa, but if they have a business, say in um, Ghana, it might be a completely different experience. Um, so I wondered if you, you could elaborate on that a little bit more about how you kind of work through or even gain the knowledge about these specific um, cultural nuances or uh, overall technical kind of uh, barriers, I would say. Yeah, I guess there's there's two layers to it. You you have sort of the the human adoption layer, which is uh, you know are people comfortable with and familiar with a certain type of technology? You know, as we discussed earlier, 
Um, sometimes people are not as comfortable with computers or uh, mobile devices as, as others. And so you have to recognize that human piece of it. But then you have the sort of the technical reality too that you have, you've got to look at. And you mentioned the, um, the, the uh, lim not limited, but uh, at times unreliable infrastructure in different parts of Africa and, and, and all over the world too. It's not just an Africa thing. Sure. It's uh, throughout uh, even parts of Europe and on, throughout Asia, you see it. Part, a lot of Latin America, you see it. Even, even in the United States, you have rural factories and things that are out in, in the middle of nowhere that don't have reliable internet access. So, you know, that's a definite dark side of the cloud that the industry doesn't really like to talk about because it undermines their story, which is cloud is awesome and cloud is the best thing ever. Um, and cloud is not the best thing ever when you're out in the middle of nowhere and don't have reliable uh, internet. So, you know, one way to, to work around that is to, um, you know, that we were talking about best of breed earlier, what we see a lot of organizations do and what we help clients throughout the world do as part of their digital strategies or, or to define as part of their digital strategies is to define a, a strategy that takes the best of both worlds. So it's okay to have on-premise in some cases. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I, I know vendors hate hearing me say that and I get called out on it all the time, but it's, it's the fact, it's your business. And if you need on-premise technology, you need on-premise technology and you need yeah. to figure out a way to do that. So what ends up happening is a lot of times organizations will have sort of on-premise technologies. It's more your day-to-day -day transactional type technologies. For example, on the shop floor, you know, a manufacturing shop floor might have an on-premise system so that even if the internet goes down or whatever, um, you can still continue to transact and run your business. And then what you do is you tie that on-premise technology. Now you can tie it back to cloud systems for financial reporting or um, general transactional uh, consolidation and, and, and capture. Um, so you can have that sort of two-tier model where you've got on-premise systems that are sort of your critical, you know, show-stopping type mm -hmm. uh, processes. And then you've got, you know, a way to tie it back. And that's the beauty of cloud now in architecture. We we're talking about architecture and integration yeah. is that it's a lot easier now to tie together an on-premise system with a cloud system now than it, than it used to be. So there's a, you know, there's definitely an architecture angle to that, but that's generally how we help navigate as navigate that is defining where, where can you leverage cloud? Where shouldn't you leverage cloud? And how does that all tie together? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I didn't even think of that, that obviously we've, We've seen um, Amazon Web Services have a, a rough couple of weeks um, in kind of their cloud hosting factory uh, or their factors here um, in the U.S. are really all over. Um, but, you know, cloud is not the solution for everyone. And I, I wonder if you have a company that might not have sophisticated data, like a lot of times that comes with, you know, a, a cloud system is you have the access to a lot of that different customer data. How do you go in to say, like, we don't have a lot of information, not only in our customers, but also maybe our, our business processes. Like we don't have a manufacturing supply chain or predictive analytics or those types of things that really do run off of a lot of that connectivity. Um, how do you go about kind of helping those types of businesses? Well, the, the first thing is recognize that stuff's not going to happen overnight just because the technology is out there and can support a lot more advanced functionality than what you might have today doesn't mean that you're going to be able to adapt that or adopt to that overnight and mm -hmm. bake that into your operations overnight. So you have to have, you know, a longer term plan that incrementally gets you there. And sometimes it's okay to start off with smaller bite-sized chunks. Maybe you're not going to have predictive analytics overnight. And you, and you can't, by the way, without having data right. accumulated in the system and, and really have a solid handle on your data. Only then can you really take advantage of predictive analytics and other types of uh, capabilities. 
so it's just a, a plan, you know, sort of a sequential plan to get you there to where, you know, you're not trying to boil the ocean overnight, but you're making steps toward that. And it's part of a longer term vision to get there uh, over. And it may take you three, five, 10 years, and that's okay. But, but having that clear vision and path to get there is what's, what's important. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a great segue into our conversation with Dave, because he really does talk about how you can leverage your business processes, especially in our current climate with our supply chain challenges that we're facing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Operational excellence and business process management, supply chain management, all that stuff is really hot right now. So it's top mm-hmm. of mind for a lot of executives, not just CIOs and not just digital transformation teams, but just businesses in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll bring Dave Beldick on the show to talk about operational excellence and BI and, and uh, doing so in the context of, of supply chains today. Um, so we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 49. Thanks for being here today. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. And I'm excited to play this clip of an interview that you conducted recently with uh, Dave Beldick, Kyler. This is about operational excellence and BEI. Um, real quick, before we cut over to him and, and to you, what what was sort of the the summary or the context of what you're you're trying to get out of here in this in this clip or in this discussion? Yeah, well, well, Dave's skill set though it's always so valuable, it's especially important right now. So I wanted to kind of have a conversation about a business of any size or any level. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're a small mom and pop shop or a globalized organization, how do you kind of navigate through these supply chain challenges? Um, And he gives us some tactics on, on how to do that. So I think it's still very relevant as we go into the new year and we are putting together strategies and, and looking at business operations and intelligence is that's a, a really a main trend to really making sure that you're able to get your product or services to your customers. Absolutely. Well, sounds intriguing. Well, let's let's listen in and let's play that clip right now. Uh, this is an interview between Kyler and Dave Beldick, who's a senior manager of strategy and transformation at uh, Third Stage Consulting. So let's cut to the clip right now. We are going to talk about specifically how small to medium-sized businesses can optimize their operations for this holiday season. Joining me for the conversation today is Dave Beldick, Senior Manager here at Third Stage Consulting Group. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Kyler. And happy holidays to you and yours. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You too. You look Absolutely. like you got your holiday earrings on today. I know, right? <laughs> I went with, for those who are listening on our audio platforms, I went with big chunky gold holiday earrings today. I felt like, you know, just getting festive. So 
Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is such an important topic just because a lot of times we've talked about the supply chain and just overall challenges for kind of larger industries and what their experience might be, or that they have the ability to maybe put a lot of capital behind labor shortages or operation optimizations or technology. So we wanted to focus today specifically on our small to medium business community and kind of help them through a really tough time to be a small business right now. Um, so if you don't mind, would you just give us a, a quick introduction and, and kind of take us through the work you do at Third Stage? Yeah, so, so at Third Stage, I mean, in general, we, we help companies that are, that are uh, trying to make decisions about like, implementing ERP and digital transformation. And, and so a lot of what we do is, is just kind of provide guidance and support. Um, you know, we act as a sounding board many times. Uh, I think, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with, with, you know, we've got that independent view. So we don't have any, any skin in the game in terms of we don't get kickbacks and stuff like that. So when people want to know, you know, what's the best software for me or what's the best system integrator or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, we can give a pretty honest answer because we don't, like I said, we don't have any any uh, any kind of kickbacks or anything. So it, it, our our whole interest is in trying to give whatever's the right fit for your particular situation. So um, that's that's what we do. We try to use our experience and knowledge to guide them in the right right direction. And all we're really trying to do is help them be as successful as they can be. And that, that's that's our whole that's our whole our whole pitch in, in, in the, in this uh, arena here really is just to kind of be as, as forth, forthright and, and, and helpful and honest as we can be. Absolutely. And you yourself are kind of an operation specialist. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, most of my background is in, is in operations and, and uh, ERP space uh, and, and uh, uh, mostly in some of the big ERP stuff. So yeah, I, I've got a lot of supply chain and manufacturing experience and, and, uh, been involved in a lot of large projects and, and uh, large and small projects. So um, we're yep. excited to hear about some of that today and see if we can't um, garner some really important insights for our small to medium businesses. So what's it like to be a small to medium business at this kind of season of life with the COVID-19 pandemic and our supply chain challenges right now? Yeah, it's an interesting time because it's got you got the holidays and the whole COVID thing going on all at the same time, and sometimes the lines blur. Um, it, it, you know, but I, I still think it comes down when you kind of take a look at at uh, what you're trying to do. It, it I look at it as you know I got to get my hands on whatever goods I need to 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 do with it whatever it is I do. If I'm if I'm a manufacturer, I need to have my raw materials right, or if I'm a if I'm in the service industry or something, I might need spare parts. If I'm in retail, I got to have a good supply. So either way, I got to have a supply. Then I've got to be able to have my employees that I can do, you know, that I can, again, do whatever it is that I do. If I manufacture, then, then, then I make the stuff. And if I'm, if I'm a retailer, then I'm, I'm putting it on the shelves and trying to sell it. And, and, uh, and then, and then it comes down to distribution. So it's kind of that, you know, how do I, how do I how do I get my hands on my supplies? How do I how do I process the stuff and how do I get it to to uh, to the end customer? There, those are the three things I kind of think about. And uh, if you kind of look at at what's happened over the past year, uh, and as we come into the to the holiday crunch time, uh, some of the things that that you uh, face is you know you've got that, that like at Christmas time in general. I forget about COVID and all that stuff in general. You know people want their stuff at Christmas, right? Yeah. So, 
uh, a day after Christmas is not good, right? So they, they, they really are dying to get their hands on their stuff when they want it. And uh, so you've got some industries that are kind of dealing with that, you know, and then there's, then there's the other industries that are like the last thing in the world anyone wants to do. Like if somebody were doing a renovation or something like that and they wanted to get it done before Christmas, that would be great, but they do not want their house tore up during Christmas, right? Sure. So you got you got some of those that are like that too. They're like they know at right in the heart of the season they're going to be completely dead, while other ones are going to be going frantic and crazy. So kind of kind of knowing where you are in that space and kind of having having your employees understand what's going to be expected of them, and then is kind of a big kind of the big deal there. Yeah, definitely. So. So sometimes in small businesses specifically, someone can wear a lot of hats and there might not be a specialized IT team or an operations team or those types of things. So when you're talking about kind of understanding that ebb and flow in your demand or your overall servicing schedule, how do you best understand that when that might not be kind of your bread and butter that you do every day? Yeah, I I think, you know, it, it does come down, if you've done this before, like if you've got a history, if this is not your first year in business, mm-hmm. uh, if it is your first year in business, God bless you, you've got a challenging <laughs> year to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good luck, right? Um, but there are some, there's always opportunities out there whenever things are going are going bad in one direction, it creates opportunities. You know, the old one door closes, another door open kind of thing goes on. So being mindful of that and looking for the opportunities, I think is, is one of the things that uh, I think some of the small and mid-sized businesses have a, have, can be a little bit more uh, aggressive in that and a little bit more responsive and able to, able to, to turn on the dime a little bit better than some of the big guys. Uh, so I, I think it, you know, it's gotta be kind of open to that. Um, I don't know, there's just a, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. No worries. Yeah, no worries. Ask me your question again. (laughs) Yeah, so we're talking about how do small business owners best understand their operations? Because I think a lot of times that can be the key, right, to optimizing them is actually understanding where are the areas in which you can, you know, influence where you get raw materials or those types of things. And then I'll kind of dip into the supply chain after that. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I think in trying to understand, you know, where you are, it does help to understand where you're vulnerable, right? So, so mm-hmm. what is your core business? What is it you're trying to do? And then how can what is going on around the world? And there's a lot going on around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, how can how how can that impact you? And, and really being honest about that. Um, so obviously, if you've been, you know, if you're one one of those that have been has uh, the good fortune to be having local supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to play very nice this time of year. Uh, it used to be you kind of had to rely on on uh, uh, the old patriotic uh, view of you know you 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 you're a local supplier you mm-hmm. you know think America whatever that that is that is the kind of thing that uh, um, kind of pulls at the heartstrings of some people uh, and you had to rely on that in years past. Now it's like wow you know what that means. If I know you're lo- that you're being supplied locally, I have more confidence in you mm-hmm. that you're actually going to get your stuff and probably in, in a better place to deliver to me. So I think it's you know it's going to be more likely that I'm going to going to lean towards you because I feel confident you're going to deliver. Um, and so if you understand that, or if you have the ability to put yourself in that position, uh, and and then and then tell the world about it, I think that 
that's a helpful thing. Um, if you've got employees, you know, if, if you, if you're the way you're structured and you're, if you're a manufacturer and you make goods and stuff and, and you've got uh, the way your, way your products are done, if you have like uh, one, one plant makes one product line and another plant makes another product line. Um, we, we've seen these situations where, where you hear of an outbreak of, of COVID or whatever, and it shuts the whole plant down. Right. Well, if you're, if you got one whole product line is made only of this plant and you shut that plant down, that product line is vulnerable. But if you're a little bit more diverse, if you've got, if you make multiple things at multiple sites and you have multiple places that you can make any given product, then now you've got that kind of flexibility. So, um, it, it, so a little bit of that depends on, you know, some of that you can change quickly, some of that not so quick. Uh, but thinking through stuff like that, understanding, playing that what if game, what yeah. if, what if that did happen at this plant? What would that mean to me? Uh, and then, and then of course, there's the what if, and then what can I do to mitigate that? I think thinking through those scenarios well in advance, having a good plan, and and kind of knowing what you would do if something were to happen, I think that's uh, that's probably the you know the most important thing you can do. The diversification of kind of how you operate, definitely. When it yeah, comes- both the diversification and, and just in general, just kind of thinking through the the you know the possibilities right yeah right more of a holistic type of strategy that you can Mm. go through these different scenarios to know like if this were to completely shut down this entire product line what would that look for like for us and and as an organization being kind of mindful of that what about the the things that you can't control so say you are a retailer that's getting a specific raw material from a specific supplier that is really struggling to get you that raw material, knowing that a lot of small to medium businesses, they don't have a lot of extra capital or funds to go completely kind of make it themselves or redo the entire supply chain. What are some opportunities to kind of look at these challenges and um, you know be flexible within your strategy like you're talking about? Yeah, I think... Um... So of course, when you come to this time of year, a lot of it has to do with you know you see a lot of a lot of advertising, a lot of a lot of steering, trying to steer the market in a certain direction. So, I think if you understand where you're where you're strong and where you're well positioned to to do well, um, that's that's obviously very important. And knowing where you're weak and vulnerable, I think that's also important. So if you have the ability to to kind of kind of steer things in your favor, so to speak, and play on your strengths. And, and uh, so, so there's, the, there's the product mix kind of thing, but then, then there's also, if you have a way to get, get in the game early. Uh, you know, people used to, you, the whole um, Black Friday thing and, and, and trying to have big sales and all that stuff. Um, part of that is to generate revenue, uh, obviously. I mean, it, it's all about generating revenue, right? But the other part is I want the sale now not Christmas Eve, because mm-hmm. it's so much easier if I, if I can, if I know what I have, I have orders in hand today that I know I've got a few weeks to deliver. That's a whole lot better than, 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 you know, trying to get those last minute sales and trying to react on that. So I think this year, probably more than, than many years past, it's that, how do I get, how do I make that sale happen earlier? And if I can, if I can influence that in any way with a sale or, or whatever, 
if I can influence that, then I'm, I'm, that's a good thing for me to do. It helps give me a little bit of reaction, time to react. And, and uh, uh, I think this year in particular, that's going to be, that's going to be a key thing. Yeah, for sure. And what would you say to a small business, maybe a restaurant or anything like that, that's really struggling with labor shortages right now? What are some strategies that they can do to overcome that or kind of work through it? Yeah, no, that's that's a big one, and and, and it's and I, I actually happen to live in an area that is a very touristy area, mm-hmm. and and we do rely on restaurants quite a bit, and they're struggling. They really have struggled mm-hmm. to get to get uh, to get good good staff, and and uh, um, it and part of that. So there's a lot of things going on there. Some of it was a COVID related, and and then there was some. I think some of the incentives that were done by the government to. To, to pay people who were out of work, um, they, they were slow to return to work. So when that when that happened, it, it, it really, the, the restaurants around us anyway, you saw a lot of folks that uh, some, of, some of them quite frankly didn't make it. Yeah. And some of them were very, very, very aggressively and very quickly realized that, hey, uh, I still got good food to sell. I, I still got, mm-hmm. I, I can still do some, some pretty heavy takeout stuff. Uh, and, and so you, you see some of that and then you see, uh, You've seen people uh, pop up with more outside dining and, and things like that. So it's thinking about what, what can you do? There's certain constraints you have uh, from the government or, or, or you know, um, whatever. I mean, just even just the mindset of folks, you're going to be, there's things that you're going to have to deal with. But if you can come up with a plan to, to try to, to, try to uh, uh, you know, deal with the, with the cards you're dealt and, and play mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think that's 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 the best you can do. But it, that in the restaurants and stuff, that's that has been a big thing. There's yeah. so much of it. Yeah, it's hard because you put you want to put a you know for restaurants to be successful. It's usually the more people you can pack in in a uh, in a restaurant, the the better you can do. Well, that doesn't play so well in COVID. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. Is, yeah. yeah, our but, food and beverage community has certainly taken a, a hit throughout the the last year and a half. Um, and I think there's something to be said building on what you said. It, just about customer transparency and the customer journey and just really saying, you know, we, we are short staffed. That's what's happening right now. And, and it might take a few minutes longer for you to get your food, but we still hope that you can have a good experience here with us. Um, So like you said, kind of just dealing with the cards you're dealt at that time and just being honest with, with your customers, I think goes a long way right now. I I, I think the, the one thing you have in your favor is that the, is the country as a whole, probably the world as a whole, is mm-hmm. eager to get out there and get back to normal. Right. So any any step that takes them a little closer, it makes them feel a little a little more like, oh, this is this feels good to be out and, and about. Uh, if you can do things to kind of help help that, you're right. I mean, it's not going to be the same as it was just yet. But it, the more you can make it feel that way, the the more people are are willing to accept, you know, some of the inconvenience to get a little bit closer to normal so there is a there is a there is a market out there is definitely a hunger mm-hmm. to uh oh, i say a hunger a little play on words there a <laughs> hunger to get out there and eat right are you and hungry i am that's right <laughs> no but i was thinking we're talking about the the restaurant industry yeah there is a hunger to get out there back in the restaurants Absolutely. No pun intended. Excellent. Yeah. Well, this oh, absolutely been... pun, totally intended. Totally pun intended. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Let's take a quick break and we'll continue this conversation between Kyler and Dave talking about operational excellence in BI. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 49. We're in the middle of a conversation between Kyler and Dave Beldick talking about operational excellence, BI, supply chains, and a bunch of other stuff related to that. Let's cut back to the conversation. And we're talking about how small to medium businesses can prepare for a crazy and uncertain holiday season. Um, so Dave, thank you again for joining us. Let's go ahead and, and jump back in. We kind of scratched the surface of the current landscape of what it's like to be a small business owner in 2021, December, globally. But I'd also like to talk about kind of how technology can help or even hurt in this, you know, um, in this holiday season. So knowing that you've worked to help implement a lot of different technology or digital transformations within small to medium businesses, what are some of the things that you've seen work during the past year within the pandemic for small businesses when it comes to integrating new technologies into their overall environment? Um, well, I think I think you know when you're trying to plan your 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 business over the year, uh, a lot of folks in in years past, you know, there was a lot of reliance on you know we this time of year in particular, you get into that whole seasonality thing. Um, you can have you have some history to, to kind of draw on, and I think you 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 can you can use that history to to give you some good insight. Um, but you also probably again this year probably more so than any other year you really have to challenge that history and say you know is how much of what happened last year or even a year before that uh, is gonna is gonna play out this year or is it you know as the as the game totally changed for me, and I think being able to to see that and understand uh, the seasonal trends and, and trying to be able to, to um, unravel, if you can, um, mm -hmm. the, how much of that was influenced by you know, the past year, you know, the pandemic and all that, and understand how it changed the game and the rules for you a little bit. I think if you can kind of differentiate that and kind of see, see the, uh, the impact of each independently, I think that puts you in a better position. It's, that is more, that is not as easy to do as just looking at historical trends over the last decade. You know, those, that you can have a lot of, a lot of technology to come into play there. But now when you see those same historical trends and try to apply it to this year, you have to ask yourself, yeah, is it, but is it really true this year? And um, it'll all play out by the end of the season, but your, your goal is to figure it out now so that you, you know, can make the most of it. And, and uh, that's a little tricky. It, it's not, uh, there's not a magic, you know, silver bullet for that one. It, it, it does take some good, good forethought. Um, but I think you, you use the technology, you use the, you use the trends and you, but you, then you, then you question it, you challenge it and you say, you know, 
you really you really got to have a good a good head about um, what is it that uh, I can I can apply and what can I not really apply anymore. Yeah, and that kind of loops back to kind of thinking through all of those different scenarios um, and kind of that forecasting piece of that. So knowing that sometimes a lot of our small businesses specifically have some challenges with data, is there a way to optimize that data, like you're saying, to kind of be able to analyze it in a, a clean and actionable way throughout this holiday season? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um... Yeah, so there's always a way, right? But it, the question is, what is the best way to, to get at that? And I think, I think having that open dialogue with the with the customers uh, is, is really important. I think I think uh, more so now than ever, I feel the need to stay on top of the news mm-hmm. and understand uh, the trends. And, and um, I'm not one who loves to look at advertising, all that stuff. But this year, I pay attention to it because mm-hmm. you start to see what's hot and what's not, and it, it's. Uh, uh, and you know what things work and who's doing well. So I, I, I guess I'm a little more open to the whole social media oh. end of things too, and trying to understand just what what people are talking about and what people are doing and what people are not doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it does it does it does uh, differ in different parts of the country. So um, it, it it's I think you got to kind of keep your eyes and ears open because it's an ever evolving thing. I mean, who knew a few days ago this Omicron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newton was going to pop up and just how quickly, how quickly that hit the markets and hit and hit things like that. And, and, and so I don't know if there's another one of those around. But I think if I were in business, I would be thinking about, yeah, what, what if what if it hit here? Uh, what what could happen? And, and, and you know, it, it's thinking through that kind of stuff is, is uh, um, it, I think it's important to, to just be open to that. Absolutely. And of course, with the emergent of the Omicron variant, since our audience is so global, we do hope everyone is staying safe in that. Um, and it, it absolutely does immediately have an effect and a trickle down effect onto some of our small businesses as well. So, so say in that type of scenario where you may be you know, in South Africa preparing for another lockdown or whatever they decide to do, um, and you're thinking about, I am a small business. I, I do face-to-face transactions. I'm going to need a different type of technology to help me through maybe doing a, an e-commerce option or something like that. Is now the time to really think through that from a reactive perspective? Or, or what would your advice be to those business owners that are, are contemplating a new technology? Yeah, so... Of course, it co- comes down to where are you in your in your overall business health, mm-hmm. and and you know if you've got if you've got the reserves and 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 you can see that this thing is uh, uh, it's still got some legs on it, right? So it's not going to go away overnight, and uh, and you and we've seen plenty of, of, of indication that it can change in a negative way overnight. So I think if you've got the capability and you've got you've got the uh, um, the resources to, to, to go after something that puts you in a better position um, from, from an e-commerce standpoint, I think it is worth pursuing. Uh, you know, obviously you, you, you can't run a business in the ground by putting in money, in something right. that, you know, so you've got to be, you know, you still got to spend wisely. Uh, but I do think that if you do it right, it, it, it can be helpful, not just, not just because and during 
uh, this crisis, but do it in a way that when we come out of this thing, you're you're better positioned to really hit the ground running. So um, I think I think yeah, it is. It does make sense if you if you're in a position where you can do that. Uh, I would say it is worth going after. And, and as hard as it is to be a small business owner right now, how do you make sure that you're making decisions, especially as a leader of the organization, out of more of a strategy mindset than a reactionary fear-based mindset? What are some tactics that you can kind of checks and balance your decision-making process to ensure like this is a sustainable option for my organization? Yeah, good, good, good question. I think I think it, it, it is a combination of a short-term view and a long-term view. And so I think if you want to say, you know, do the, look in the crystal ball five years from now, where do I want to be? COVID's behind us. I certainly hope it is. <laughs> but all that, you know, let's hope it's back to normal. Where do I want to be in, when we're back to normal and life is good and, and people are, 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 are returning to normalcy and, and spending money? And, and what do I want to be? So what do I want to be when I grow up kind of question? And then say, okay, now knowing where I want to be, what are the things that I need to put in place to help one, help get me there. And two, what are the things that can help me immediately now? Um, I think that helps balance the, the short-term need and the long-term vision, you know, just go with the end in mind, uh, but do things now that'll be most beneficial to you in the short term, but still contribute to the long-term plan. That's kind of how I look at it. That is very well said and a perfect place to kind of lead this conversation. Any final thoughts for our SMB community out there as we go through, you know, kind of an uncertain holiday season? Yeah, so we all rely on our employees, right, to, to, do, to do things. And, and, and we're going to, in many cases, we're going to ask, uh, ask them to do yeoman things during, uh, during the next uh, month or so. So I think... Uh, Keep your eyes and ears open to uh, what's going on with them and Inv involve them. And, and, you know, this is, if ever there was a time we have to troubleshoot uh, a, a, a business, if you will, now's the time. And, and, and some of the best resources you have are your employees. So, so talk, I mean, open it up, talk to them and, and, and let's figure out, you know, if they, you want them long-term, they want long-term employment. Uh, let's figure out a way that to, to make it happen. So I think just having that open dialogue and being open and honest with everybody as you go through this is, is always a good, always a good thing, but particularly a good thing uh, at this time of year, because it is so, it is so crazy. Excellent advice. You know, that employee company relationship has become really a critical piece to, to business success and strategy. So definitely a, a great point there. Um, I will say if, if you would like more information on um, our small business content, please go ahead and head over to our YouTube channel. We have a, a whole playlist dedicated to just our SMB community. Um, and Dave's contact information will be on our um, description here. If you have questions for him, he is a, a wealth of knowledge, obviously, um, and such a great asset to our third stage team here. So feel free to pop in the note and, and reach out. But Dave, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're so grateful for your great insights. Thanks, my pleasure. All right, thank you, Kyler. Dave, thanks for being here. That's a great discussion. We've got some things to unpack and follow up within that conversation. Uh, but first, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number forty-nine. Here with Kyler Cheatham, and, and Kyler, you just uh, or we just played this clip of you interviewing Dave Beldick mm-hmm. talking about operational excellence and BI. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that discussion? Yeah, I always love um, you get getting to chat with Dave because he does such a great job of kind of laying everything out in a non like terrifying way. So the thing I totally I agree. was expecting, right? For Dave to be like, yeah, you know, we're in we're in dire sorts with our supply chain, and he he didn't react that way at all. Um, he kind of talked about this level of creativity that are, is needed, you know, to really get say the raw materials or the pre-assembled materials you're looking for within your supply chain. Um, for example, he talked a lot about diversification. You know, you've always worked with this one vendor and. And that's how you've gotten your things. And they may be really oceans away from you. Um, but looking at the different vendors or the partners that you could utilize more locally or that could give you pieces that you typically wouldn't um, essentially put together, they would come pre-assembled, but you have the ability to do that now. So he kind of just talked about that need for kind of outside of the box thinking when it comes to supply chain issues right now. I th- that's a good point, and it's a good reminder that uh, you know supply chains are being disrupted. Obviously, in in the way they used to work and the way we used to manage the supply chains is is a lot different. The the needs have changed, the parameters have changed, the limitations and risks have all changed. So it, I agree with you. It's it's important to think differently than we have over the last twenty or thirty years about uh, supply chain management, especially as it relates to global supply chains. This is really the first time we've seen major disruptions to globalization in general and supply chains in general. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about kind of looking internally at your controllables. Like, so for example, you know, if, if you have the ability to drive to get your product, maybe you always relied on a a transportation service, FedEx, UPS, and, and those types of things that um, now aren't as reliable. Well, can you internalize driving to get that um, that raw material, and obviously that's a really basic example, but that's that's specifically um, you know targeted to our, our small to medium sized businesses that may not have a ton of capital to put into a fancy supply chain management system, but they do have the ability to merely map out their process, even on a whiteboard or a chalkboard or anything like that, and figure out where there's areas to kind of pivot in order to get their um their products to their warehouses yeah yeah absolutely and it's and it's you bring up a good point in that you don't necessarily need big massive expensive solutions that are going to take you one two three years or whatever to to deploy 
most organizations are struggling with immediate supply chain challenges that need to be fixed now. And in one of Dave's um, areas of expertise that you probably picked up on during this interview and other, other interviews we've had with him is that he focuses a lot on benefits realization and value realization um, of technology investment. So it may be that you have sort of an incremental uh, intermediate or interim strategy to get the most out of what you've got while in parallel, maybe you're thinking about or starting to look at potentially deploying, you know, a broader um, a replacement to your supply chain management systems. So, you know, again, it's not either or, it's not all or nothing. You can be doing incremental improvements to what you've got. Um, at the same time, you're looking at, at a broader uh, transformation that, that might take you even further than those incremental improvements. Yeah, and, and he um, was funny in our interview when in my favorite consultant line of it depends, you know, <laughs> that yeah. type of thing. Um, but really he talked about each supply chain is really unique to the business. So making sure that you have an understanding or a visibility, again, through just mapping out the process to see where you, you have the ability to optimize. And that doesn't always come, you know, with fancy computers or, or those types of things that are monitoring or sensors within your warehouse. All those things are great and a great future initiative as we look at emerging technologies, but just overall understanding how your supply chain works from, you know, from the, the minute it starts and all the way through and all of the different people that are involved in that and having kind of a tier two option. Are there other people that can be involved? Are there a diversification of, of vendors that we can utilize more than one? That type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Having a, a really deep look and a deep bench of those what if scenarios type of thing. Yeah. And it's back to the point that you brought up earlier about best of breed when we were talking about the hot mm -hmm. topics and at the beginning of the show. Um, you know, best of breed point solutions. Sometimes those can be really good interim uh, tactics that tie into a longer term strategy. So for example, if you're looking for ways to improve your supply chain and rather than necessarily going out and replacing your entire supply chain, warehouse management, procurement, inventory management, uh, financial management, all that stuff, maybe you say, well, our biggest pain point right now is our warehouse. Uh, the whole pick pack and ship process, that's the most broken part of our supply chain. So let's put in a warehouse management system to automate some of that. And that's going to be lower risk, lower cost. Mm -hmm. You may not get as much benefit as if you replaced everything, but it gives you some lift um, within that. And, and the other thing too, you know, even if you've set aside technology replacements per se, a lot of organizations, if you ask them, how much are you getting out of, how much potential are you realizing in your current systems, even if they're really old systems, oftentimes you're going to hear numbers like 30, 40%, maybe. And if you're lucky, you might hear, sometimes we hear clients say, yeah, we're getting about 70 or 80% of you know, all we can out of that system. Rarely do we hear a company say, yeah, we, we've totally maxed out the capabilities or, or we're fully taking advantage of the capabilities and now we're ready to move to the next thing. Usually it's, yeah, we didn't deploy these modules or we're not using this the way it was meant to be used. Why not max that out in the short term and get as much value as you can out of your current systems, which then just prepares you and takes you one step closer to being ready for, you know, a, a digital upgrade or overhaul that you might go through in the future. So, you know, again, it, it depends <laughs> to, to, your, yeah, uh, right. to your point. It just depends on where you are and how risk adverse you are, your capital um, requirements or, or what kind of capital ability or availability you have to spend on technology, technology, all that stuff has to be factored in. You know what I find interesting about um, our consultants on the third stage sites that are really business intelligent focused is they're kind of the last people to 
recommend software. Like not because businesses don't need it, but there's just so much value that can kind of be harvested or mined from your current processes so that you have not only the insight to maybe optimize them right now as is, but also look at what are your actual needs and requirements for a new system. So that always, cause I always feel like, you know, on the, the business um, intelligence side, that whole word looks to AI, looks to, you know, kind of the next frontier of emerging technologies or warehouse management technologies, supply chain technologies, all those types of things. But whenever I talk to our operations experts, they always talk about how much value there can be within your current system. Even if you're thinking or you're already committed to getting a new system, if you don't evaluate your current system and really understand it from start to finish, there's no point in getting a new system because you don't really understand your overall business. And he stressed the importance of that at any level. Yeah, great point. And it's also in addition to not having the understanding you need about your own business to make your future technology replacement successful, you also have to figure that you're going to, the jump you have to make is bigger than it needs to be. If you can get closer to maxing out your current systems and getting the full value out of it, that just takes you a step closer to that technological gap that you need to fill, or to use a term you were talking about earlier, the technological debt that you have as an organization, you can, you could sort of clean that up or shore some of that up just with your current technologies by getting more out of it. Now, certainly there's companies out there that have outgrown their technologies. It's not going to allow them to scale. And I'm not suggesting that just leave your technology alone and you'll be fine. But most organizations we work with and see uh, have value. They can still get out of their current systems and they're just not taking advantage of that. So you might as well just take those steps towards it. It's going to get you closer to filling that gap between where where you are today and what you want to be in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I um, definitely encourage our audience to reach out to Dave if you do have operation questions. He's a wealth of knowledge and has you know great overall experiences in a lot of different industry verticals, but at a lot of different levels of organizations too. So he gave a lot of information for our small to medium businesses, but also has a, a background in, in helping global operations as well. So yeah, definitely if you have questions, you can reach out to me or him and, and we can chat. Absolutely. And, and another thing, another resource uh, related to that that you can follow up on if you're interested in learning more is uh, we have some videos on my YouTube channel. And then also uh, on this podcast, we have some discussions around business process mining, mm-hmm. um, in particular with Wayne Holtham from uh, Third Stage. Um, he talks about uh, on one episode recently, I can't remember which number it was, but if you scroll through our list of episodes, you'll see one that talks about business process mining. That's an excellent conversation with Wayne, and that's a good way to really understand how to how to measure and analyze what is actually happening in your current systems mm-hmm. as far as workflows and business processes and volumes and exceptions and breakdowns and bottlenecks, all that stuff. It, it's a really cool discussion. If you're not familiar with business process mining technology, I encourage you to check out that interview uh, from a recent podcast uh, of this show. So good stuff. Well, we made it. We made it through the first episode of the year. So thanks for thanks for your help as always, Kyler. Uh, only minor screw ups. Nothing. Nothing uh, too too major. Uh, hopefully, and um, we look forward to next week's uh, conversation. We'll we'll have a new episode on Wednesday as we do every Wednesday uh, here in the new year. Uh, find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. And be sure to drop us a note. Leave us a review on the platform you're you're listening leave a comment uh, any any feedback you have for us we'd love to hear your feedback on what you think or what topics you think we should cover or 
you just have anything to add to the topics we've covered here today. So thanks very much for being here. Happy New Year, everyone. Look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Have a good week in the meantime. We'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.